Hey friends, we're so glad that you've joined us here today. My name's Kevin and I'm one of the pastors here at Friends Church in Orange. And whether you're watching this message online or listening to it in your car or on a run or wherever you are today, it's our hope that the words that are shared, that the message of God that is shared in this message will give you hope, life, and encouragement as you seek to live faithfully for Jesus in the midst of your world. If you'd like to connect with us, you can do so by going to our website. We'd love to meet you, we'd love to connect with you, and we'd love to serve you in any way we can. Thank you, thank you. Well, hey, real quick, if you think this series is finishing today, I'm so sorry. We got five more weeks of this series. But the good news of that is we are halfway through the series where we are learning about and, and talking about who Jesus is. I want you to think for a quick moment. If I was to ask you, who is Jesus? What would your answer be? Like there's something, right, that would come into you instantly in your mind. You'd say, this is who I would describe Jesus as. But if I asked you then to turn to your neighbor, maybe the person that you came with today, and ask them to describe it, they might have a different answer for who Jesus is. And then if you were to go outside these walls and to talk to other people in your life or in your community or wherever it might be, and you were to ask them, hey, tell me who Jesus is, they might come up with a different answer as well. Yesterday, I was playing golf with a good friend of mine who doesn't love Jesus, but he knows a lot about Jesus. And the way that he would answer that question is a little different than the way that I would answer that question. And the reality is, Jesus is so talked about that if we ask the question, who is Jesus, you're going to get as many answers as there are people because everybody has an opinion or a thought or an experience with Jesus. And so what I love about what we've been doing the last five weeks and what we'll do the next five weeks after this is we're asking not people, who do you think Jesus is, but we're literally just going to the scriptures and saying, Jesus, who do you say that Jesus is? And there's something that's, that's beautiful in that, but there's also something that's frustrating in that. I don't know about you, but in my, in my life group this last week, right, the group of us that get together every week to, to unpack what we're talking about on Sundays and what we're seeing in the scriptures and care for each other and love one another, in that group we were talking about the parables. And all these people, many of whom have been involved in church and know Jesus so well, just said, hey, can I be honest? The parables are a little weird. They're a little confusing. Like, why can't Jesus just come out and say, hey, guys, I'm Jesus, God, in a bod, and uh, God in a bod, and you know, I came to defeat sin, death, and the devil so that you could have life and have it abundant and live in my kingdom. Right? It would be so nice if he just made it that nice, neat, and simple, and yet Jesus chooses to speak in stories. Jesus chooses so many times to use metaphor and simile, right? He's the master of metaphor. He's the sultan of, of simile, right? Like he just loves to give pictures and imagery, and the reason why he does that, the reason why, right, these stories that are 2,000 years old that maybe not, might not always fit perfectly in our context were so important to him and they're so important for us and why we're spending time unpacking them over the course of this fall is because Jesus knew that to illustrate the things he was talking about, he would need to paint with an illustrative brush because the reality is the way of the world is so different than the way of Jesus. And so rather than just saying, I'm calling you to a different way, he literally just says, I'm going to paint you a picture to show you what that way looks like. 
And so today, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 18. So if you guys have your Bibles, open them up, Matthew chapter 18. If you need a Bible, there's some um, in the back under the chandelier on a bookshelf. We'd love for you to grab one, get one, get 10. Your Christmas gifts are already done for the year, whatever it might be. But open up to Matthew chapter 18. It'll be on the screen as well. And before we dive into this, I want you to hear this. If you hear nothing else today, let this cement in your minds. This is the heart of what we're going to be talking about today, and it's this. It's God's heart must shape our attitudes towards one another. God's heart must shape our attitudes toward one another. All right, Matthew 18. We're going to start in verse 10. It says, see, Jesus is talking. He says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier. He is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. And in the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. So right off the top, you guys saw Angel talked about the fact that we had child dedications this morning. And if you're thinking, man, man, this church is really good. They're really slick. They thought child dedications. And we're going to talk about a passage about not despising children. You would be wrong. Because even though we read this and it says, see that you don't despise the little ones. What we have to learn is that when we read the Bible, especially when we read one or two or three verses, we need to also understand the context around those verses to see what Jesus is actually talking about. And in this passage, when he says little ones, he's not talking about children. He's actually talking about you and me, about Christians and people who've chosen to follow him. And so to understand and to see that in its context, we need to go back to the beginning of this chapter. So we're going to look at chapter 18. We're going to start in verse 1. And it says this. It says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked. They asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a little child to him, and he placed the child among them. And he said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. So look at what's going on. Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's talking with his boys, his fellows. They've been walking together for several years. And even though they've been walking with Jesus, literally following in his footsteps, they still don't get what Jesus is going to illustrate for us, that the way of Jesus, the kingdom of God, is so different than the way of the world. And so in that, one of the things he's saying, he's like, they, they literally come to him and they jockey for position and they say, hey, who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They say, Jesus, right before this, we were talking about different taxes, and you're saying, give taxes to this person and this person. Those are all pretty influential people. So then they're thinking, we also then need to start thinking about influence. And as they're asking which person will be greatest, right, or who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, they're thinking Jesus is going to maybe give them a name. And not just any name, but I think these fellows are hoping and thinking and pleading and praying that Jesus will give them their name. They'll say, Peter, you're going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. John, Andrew, Bartholomew, and the rest of the lot. One of you is going to be the greatest. 
And Jesus dismisses their question because Jesus looks at these guys and he says, with love and compassion, you just don't get it. You just don't get it. Life with Jesus, life in the kingdom, is not the way that we live here and now. Life in the kingdom, he says, not only are we going to talk about who's the greatest in the kingdom, we're going to talk about what it even takes to get into, to be with me forever. And he says, unless you adopt the posture of a child, you will not even enter into the kingdom of heaven. So again, on a day like this, where we have children on this stage, and they're cute, and they're wonderful, and adorable, and amazing, we look at that and say, well, that's nice and sweet. They're happy and beautiful and just happy to be here. That's what you're talking about, Jesus, right? And of course, the answer is no. Because although all those things are true, and although God loves kids so dearly, what he's trying to point out for them is that if you want to be great in God's economy, you need to become insignificant. If you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, you need to humble yourself here in this life. Because in that day and age, children literally had zero value. In fact, the pronoun that was often used in Greek and Greco-Roman culture to talk about children was not boy or girl, it was it. And so what Jesus does is he pulls an it into this crowd, into this discussion with his boys and says, unless you become, not like this cute boy or cute girl, unless you become like an it, someone that you and everyone else discards, you will never get where we're going. My wife and I have been married for three and a half years. And we're right at that point where so many people, right? They're like, all right, guys. When the baby's coming, right? I have no announcements for you guys today. But I do know, and if you've been in that place, you're kind of in that place where you're like, man, yeah, kids are awesome and wonderful, and we love them, and we love spending time with them. In fact, a few weeks ago, we got away to San Diego to go watch some Dodgers and some Padres games with my brother and sister-in-law, and they've got two boys, and they've got another one on the way. That's Shep and Sully, and we love them to death. They're awesome, they're cute, and they're so cuddly and so, like, huggable, Right? And we usually spend time with these boys. You know, it's like two hours at a time, family dinner. It's like three hours at a birthday party. It's like four hours. You know, we go to the zoo. This was the first time we spent a weekend in one hotel room with them. And I got to tell you, there is nothing that's going to slow the baby fever more than being like, whoa, I like this job of aunt and uncle. I don't know if we like the job of mom and dad just yet. You know what I mean? Right? And because you see just how wonderfully cute they are, they are so needy and they're so dependent and they're constantly just reaching for and screaming for and wanting all these different things from their mom and their dad. And why? It's not a bad thing. That's literally what babies do. And the kids know that they're so dependent on mom and they're so dependent on dad. And what Jesus illustrates for us through this example of children is that if you want to understand who Jesus is, if you want to live into the kingdom of God, then you need to adopt the posture of humility that kids have. Because like I've said a few times already, the way of Jesus is radically different. It's radically different than the way of the world. And on one hand, you hear a statement like that, the statement of the kingdom of God or the way of Jesus is radically different. And you say, well, no, duh, I totally get that. I totally understand that. That makes so much sense in my mind. When you talk to people 
who maybe are on the fence about, well, should I follow Jesus or not? One of the things they will often say is, I think Jesus is cool, but I don't know how this is going to change everything that I experience on a day-to-day basis. Like, I recognize that it's going gonna, it's gonna to mess some things up. But I'm not going get, to get to go to brunches early on Sundays. And then God's maybe going to call me to things like holiness and righteousness and like giving my life away. But that's true too, right? And so we know that, that, that we read a statement like this, the way of Jesus is radically different. And we say, yeah. But then, and this is something God was convicting me in this week, was the question of, okay, I know that. But as someone who chooses to follow Jesus, do I actually live like it? Like, like, do I really live like it? Let me ask you. You know Jesus calls you to live differently. You know Jesus calls you to live in a world of we instead of me. You know Jesus calls you to live in a world of lifting others up instead of yourself. You know Jesus calls you to lower and humble yourself instead of fighting and clawing for status or whatever. And yet, even though you know that, do you allow it to permeate your heart so much that you see it out in the world? And then the scarier question, do you allow it to permit your heart even here with the community of believers? Right, even though we are called to live differently, and the way we live differently should first be displayed here in the church so it is a beautiful picture and a witness to the world of that's what community is like. That's what a lack of selfishness looks like. That's what unity looks like. That's what follows. Okay, they're doing it differently. But so often we bring the thoughts and the processes of the world into the church. And even though we say, we love Jesus, we say, yeah, but I'm going to get mine. Yeah, but I'm not going to sacrifice my life because I like the idea of Jesus being a personal savior, but I don't like the idea of Jesus being my king. Jesus, I live in a democracy where I get a vote. And Jesus says, not, not in my kingdom. It's for this reason that Paul says in Romans 12, 3, for by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you in your relationships with one another. In Philippians 2, he says this, he says, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So if the example that we've been given is an example of humility, then the life that God calls us to lead and to live is a life that requires the humility and dependence of a child to his mother or her father. And so with all this in mind, Jesus now defining for us that when he's talking about little ones, he's not talking about children. He is talking about God's children, which would be the church. He huddles up his boys, he huddles up his disciples, and he has a little bit of a family chat. And Jesus gives us a perfect glimpse into some pretty good parenting. Let's go back. Matthew 18, verse 10, it says this. It says, see, or Jesus says, see, that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What's he saying? It's pretty clear. See to it. Make certain that you do not despise each other. 
Why? Because every single person matters so deeply to God that there are angels in heaven who are ministering on their behalf, who are praying for every single person who knows Jesus. And again, we might look at this and say, okay, so what's Jesus saying? He's saying, don't despise, don't disparage, don't belittle other believers. And we hear that, and you might think, well, that makes sense. It's just like the whole living for the kingdom is different. Yeah, yeah, I get that. But then when we sit in that word, when we sit in that truth and allow it to sift through our heart, then we begin to be like, oh, boy. I do that all the time. Oh, boy, I do that all the time. And as I was just thinking this week, just, you know, different people were coming to mind for me, people who I probably after today really need to call and have a conversation with just to say, I'm sorry. You might not even know that I've, I've thought this about you, but in my thought life, even this week, man, I just, I didn't think the best of you. And I'm, that's not what I'm called to be as a Christian. I'm called to love you with the love that God has given me. And I'm sorry. And you might be here and just saying, okay, I get that. There might be people that we maybe despise in our mind, but what does that actually look like lived out? Like, who, Kevin, are you talking about that we might despise or exclude? And so I spent a little bit of time on Friday, and this was kind of a sobering sort of something, just coming up with a list. And this list is in no way exhaustive. I'm sure if we all sat down and had a jam sesh, this list could be as long, right, written out. We could cover every piece of floor with the ways in which we might despise or belittle one another. And so this isn't exhaustive, and yet I think it is pretty inclusive of what we do when we do this. And the first kind of people that I think that we often despise or exclude in the church, it's, it's a wide category, but it's literally just those who are different. Now, you can take that to mean a number of different things, right? Those who don't fit into my social group, those who feel a little bit weird or a little bit off, those who I don't hang out with outside of this place, whatever it might be. And so for whatever reason, even though we're in the church, I'm just going to choose to kind of edge them out. Oh, sorry, my life group's full. Sorry, I don't, that's great you want to serve. I'll find a different serve team for you to join. Hey, I, I get that you need something, but I'm sure someone else can do it. Why? You're just, uh, you're just a little different. And think about it. That's literally the way that the world lives. That's literally the way that, that everyone who is not part of the church lives, right? It's, hey, you've got people that you work with from eight to five, and once you're clocked out, you don't have to see them again until the next day, right? And you go home, and you spend time just with the people you enjoy. But Jesus doesn't give us that luxury. Or the church is not a country club. The church is a place where Jesus brings people from all shades and all backgrounds and all beliefs, brings them together and says, figure it out because you're unified in Christ. So don't let the things that divide us in this world divide you in the church. And if the church saw, or sorry, if the world saw a church that was so united and saying, we're different, but we love God, and so that's what's most important, what do you think that would look like to the world? They'd say, that's what we want to be a part of. But if they see a church that just divides and separates and is just as clicky as the rest of the world, well, I'm sorry. I don't think that's in any way an attractive way to live. James 2.1 says this. It says, my brothers and sisters, believers in our Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. 
He goes on right after that to share a little bit of a story. He says, suppose someone comes into your assembly. Suppose someone comes into church, right? And they've got, man, it's just, they're, you know, they're swagged out. Man, it's obvious this person's got a good life. And you're like, dude, I got a seat for you, front row. Let's go right here. Come on. Do you want to sit down? Do you want me to get you a cappuccino? You want me to hang out with you? What do you want me to do? And then if someone comes in in tatters, smelling like they haven't bathed in weeks, and you kind of push them off to the corner, he says, don't ever do that. The world says do that. The church can't. Because God's heart for everyone has to change our attitude toward everyone. Who else might we despise or exclude? Well, maybe it's not just those who are different. Maybe it's also those who I disagree with. Right? I think we've seen the last few years, there have been a lot of things that have divided people that shouldn't divide people. Again, if the church is, is, is a group of people coming from all different backgrounds and all different walks of life and yet are united in Jesus, well, then we shouldn't be shocked if there's a distinction in how we vote. There shouldn't be a distinction in, you know, like maybe, I don't know, you know, like our, 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 how we choose to spend our free time, maybe even certain things or beliefs we have about God that aren't the most important things. And so the way we choose to walk with Jesus maybe are a little different. And so for whatever reason, Jesus says, no, no, fight for unity, fight for together. Don't despise, don't belittle, don't gossip about someone else. Did you hear that they're a Democrat? Did you hear they're a Republican? Don't do that. Why? Because people of difference come together under the unity and the banner of Christ to say this is who we are. Jonathan and I were joking earlier because uh, he's a big Arsenal fan, and I just always tell him I'm sorry. Um, Arsenal's a soccer team. Um, and uh, last I saw, they were beating my team right now. <laughs> and as silly as it is, right, the idea of saying, Jonathan, I'm not going to fellowship with you. I'm not going to hang out with you. I'm not going to be in relationship with you. Why? Because you like a different sports team with me. Like, we would all look at that and say, that's stupid. But I'd say the same thing about just because you voted for this person or that person doesn't mean that we should split our fellowship. No. We fight for unity when the world says to divide. So who else do we despise or include? Those who are different, those who we disagree with. Oh, sorry, for that last one, really quick. Uh, scripture, Ephesians 4, 3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. The next someone that we might exclude or despise is someone who has a div divergent conviction. But I don't know about you, but if you've been in the church for a while, there's been a lot of talk about where people have different beliefs about what we call Christian liberty. The idea is Jesus says, hey, like, like be in Christ, right? You're able to do so much. And yet, over and over and over again, we are told to lay down our liberty, lay down our freedom, lay down the things that we know we're allowed to do in Christ if it's going to hurt someone else's understanding of who Jesus is. When was the last time, even though the Bible is not against alcohol, it's against drunkenness, when was the last time that you said, you know what, I'm not going to have a glass of wine tonight because I know that someone at this table has actually struggled with that or has had an issue in their family? When was the last time right? That you said, you know what? I'm not going to choose to go to this place or listen to this music or be involved in this thing, even though Jesus is okay with it, but because I know the people I'm hanging out with, it's going to hurt. They're not going to see Jesus living through my life that way. So I'm going to choose to lay down certain things because I want to lift them up. It's a conversation 
that my parents and I, especially my mom, have all the time around alcohol. It's something that you know, I know and believe, and they know and believe is okay to have a glass of wine. And yet, because of a history of alcoholism in parts of my family, my parents choose to stay away from it. So do you know who we don't have a glass of wine with when my wife and I are having dinner? My parents. It's just an easy way to show honor and respect. Even though we all know what's right, we're choosing to lay our life down for the sake of unity and for the sake of togetherness. We have different convictions, but we know that those convictions are under the banner of Jesus. Who is someone else that we might despise or exclude in the church? It might be those, oh sorry, Romans 14.1, I keep skipping over these guys, except the one who is weak in faith, or whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. Who's someone else that we might despise or exclude? Those who have sinned in a shocking way. Right, no one in the world is, good, is as good as gossiping, I feel like at times, as people in the church. We, we know that everyone sins. Like, we get that, right? Like, Scripture's so clear on that. And yet, the moment someone has an affair, the moment someone moves out, the moment someone's life just blows up because they made some poor, poor choices, and the moment that they probably need us to move towards them with love and grace and compassion more than anyone else, so often you'll hear people in the church say, well, you know what, I always knew they were on the rocks. You know what, we probably just shouldn't spend time with them because they're toxic right now. You know what, we should, we should, we should create some boundaries. And boundaries can be good, don't get me wrong, but Jesus' heart is that we would always move towards people, especially people whose sin has desperately grieved God. Galatians 6, 1 and 2 says this. It says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. Carry one another's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Who else might we despise or exclude? This is my last one on the list. Like I said, it's not an exhaustive list, but it's those who are wandering. I don't know about you, but in the last three years, as the world has just turned upside down in so many different ways, it has just grieved my heart this week thinking about all the people who used to be in these chairs that are no longer walking with Jesus. It grieves my heart to think about a friend of mine who when I was in college, we got to baptize in a jacuzzi because they just love Jesus so much, we're so on fire. And then now claims Christ, but does not live for him. And what the world would often say, right, is it's okay, friendships go, people change, like it's, you know, like just, just stick with the ones you have, right? But Jesus loves deeply and dearly those who have gone astray. And that's why Jesus tells this parable. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and to go and look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, 
your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. This is God's heart. His heart is for the lost, but it's also for those who have been found and are now wandering. And Jesus doesn't despise them. Jesus doesn't disparage them. Jesus understands that they're on a journey. And Jesus says, I am still going after them. When I talk to people who used to fervently follow Jesus and now don't, do you know what they usually tell me is the reason why? It's not because of Jesus. And it's rarely because of brunch or bike rides. It's because of Christians. They know Jesus is good. They know Jesus is loving. They know Jesus is caring. They know what Jesus did for them. There's a reason why God did so much in their life. And yet, the reason why they're not in this room, the reason why they've broken off fellowship, the reason why they're doing their own thing, whatever that might be, is because so often we have not extended grace. We have not moved towards them in their distress. We have not moved towards them just because they were different or whatever. We have been the ones. I have been the one. You have been the ones who have said, you know what? We're going to have our holy huddle and our country club. And we're not going to continue to show you the Father's love. But friends, remember, God's heart, it has to shape our attitude towards one another. It has to. And if God's heart is for the lost and the lonely and for the wandering and for those who are outside, if it says that he rejoices more over that one than these 99, oh boy, then we should not walk away. But we should continue with love and affection to go towards. Is every time I read this story, Every time I read this parable of the wandering sheep, I think about my friend. It's about 10 years ago, um, I got a call from a friend. He just said, hey, buddy. And I could just hear it in his voice, right? Like, this is a guy who's one of the happiest, most go-lucky people I know in my entire life, right? He married my wife and I. He was the officiant at our wedding, and it was basically a comedy set. I mean, it was amazing and wonderful and so, so good. And when he called me and said, hey, buddy. There was a weight in his voice to where I was quickly like, what's up? And he basically began to walk me through a story, a story which I knew, but I'll walk you guys back to the beginning of. That about two years prior to him making this phone call, he and his wife felt called by God to foster adopt a little girl. They already had two bio kids of their own, and they said, you know what, we're going to go, and we're going to find a kid, we're going to foster adopt them, because that's the heart of the father, and we want to do that for someone else. And I said, that's amazing, and that's wonderful. And they get placed with this beautiful six-month-old girl who, for a number of reasons in her family life, needed to be taken out of her family life. And they loved her, and they cared for her so well. And their boys just, like, made such a bond with this little girl. And it was amazing, and it was wonderful, and it was so beautiful. And they were about two weeks away from getting to the place to where they were going to legally, officially, court-stamped, be this girl's mom and dad. When they got a phone call, and the phone call was from the, the court system and from everyone. And they said, hey, like, this is going to be really rough for you, but in some ways, best case scenario, this little girl's parents got the help they needed. And so we know you're two weeks away from adoption, but we're going to put her back with her biological parents. 
And you can just imagine the weight of that on someone's heart to say, this is breaking our soul. I remember the boys were so distraught. And they just thought, okay, that's it. We got to love this little girl for a while, and we're going to pray for her, but she'll always be a part of our family, but she's not going to be part of our family. And then a few months later, they went through the process again and, and started the process of foster adopting another little girl. And while that process was going on, my friend got a phone call. And a phone call said, hey, your daughter, the one that was almost your adoptive daughter, is back in the system. Mom and dad aren't doing good. But if you don't know, if you know the way the foster care system works, you don't go back to the home that you were in right before you left. You just go back into the system. And so my friend calls me and he says, hey, buddy, I need you to fill in for me at something next week because I am going to do whatever it takes to get my little girl home. And he did and every time they live in Palm Desert now, I don't see them often, but every time I'm on Instagram and I just see pictures of this little girl who's in middle school now, I just look at her and I say, that's the heart of Jesus. If you're part of the family, you're part of the family. And so even if you wander away, Jesus goes after you. God's heart must shape our attitudes towards one another. And I don't know where you're at today, but I know as I have let this passage just sift through my soul, just a few things have come to mind. The first has been all the ways that I have maybe disparaged, despised, even in my own head, other believers. I've just had a week of repentance. But I also know that as I see the heart of Jesus going towards those who are lost or those who are wandering, I am just reminded of all the people in my life who used to know Jesus well and who now are not walking with him. And I was reminded that as much as I want to see them back in community and back with us and back in all these different things, I was reminded that God loves them way more than I ever will. And I was comforted by the fact that I can own things maybe that have caused people to walk away, but what I also know is that Jesus is relentless in pursuing them. And so for all of us here today, we're going to take just a little bit of time to, to sing a song that's known by so many of us. And even if you don't know it, just let the words of it kind of come over you. But as we sing this song, I want you to think through, man, maybe there's someone, maybe someone is just right in the front of your mind that you're saying, wow, I have in my heart or with my words or my actions, I have excluded them. I have not shown the heart of Jesus to them. My attitude has been more like the world than it has been about Jesus. I haven't adopted the humility of a child. I've looked out for myself and not for them. And so maybe there's someone, you may be in this room, maybe that you need to, after the service, make a phone call to, to just say, I am sorry, will you forgive me? 
Maybe there's also someone in your life. It could be a child. It could be a parent. It could be a sibling. It could be a spouse that knows who Jesus is, but they're not walking with him. Maybe during this next song, it's an opportunity for you just to lift them up to God and say, God, I believe, I'm going to choose to believe that you love them more than I ever do. I'm going to trust that you are chasing them down. And lastly, maybe you're here today and you're recognizing, even though I'm here today, I am not living my life for Jesus. Even though I'm showing up, my heart is far from him, I would just love to encourage you to just look, take your eyes to heaven, whatever it might be, and just say, God, thank you that even in my wandering right now, you're convicting me and calling me home and showing me your heart, and would I turn towards your heart? So we're going to pray, we're going to sing, we're going to give these people and ourselves up to the Lord. Let's pray. God, you, we read in John that you are the good shepherd. And we read in Luke that you go after those who are truly lost. And we read here in Matthew that those who wander aren't far from you. So God, today, would you convict us? God, today, would you help us to become a community that does not despise but lifts up? And God, would you, in your loving, pursuant grace, go after the people who even we have not shown your love too well. God, thank you that your love is overwhelming. It's never ending.